Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 72. Customizing Your Sonics Experience. So for this episode, we're going to talk around a central theme about don't be afraid to take your airplane and really kind of customize it for the things that you want to do. Whether that's trying out something new or tailoring it to meet your specific mission or just having fun and experimenting. So we're going to talk to Jake Logan and we're going to hear about his experience. So Jake completed his Tri-Gear Jab 3300 powered Sonics late I guess it was early in 2019, so he's got a, a little over a year flying it, and he's gone through a number of mods. Some of them have been really cool, and we're going to hear all about what he's done. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonic's 1374, and joining me once again, my two good flying buddies, John Gillis and Gary Motley. And uh, I, I was looking forward to adding Mike Needenthal to that list, but, uh, you know, Mike, uh, he stood us up to fly, I guess he's flying back to Vegas or something. Anyway, uh, John Gillis, Gary Motley, uh, John, how's it going? Well, we're just uh, you know living the living the dream here uh, in a coronavirus uh, shutdown. Um, we did have a a um, a bit of a movement in our glider club. Um, we've done some reevaluation of recreational use under the governor's uh, shutdown. And we think we qualify just like the paintball uh, groups and the golf courses and the go-kart tracks that we can actually operate our glider clubs. So we're starting up operations as we can. Of course, the weather isn't uh, cooperating, but we're, uh, we're going to be back in the air. Good. Yeah, I mean, if, uh, if, if we are encouraging people to go out and, and participate in activities outdoors, get out of the house, but just don't congregate in large groups, well, by definition, you know, in your, your glider, you're either by yourself or with one other person. That's, that's a pretty small group and you are way outdoors. So I think it's a good match. Yeah, I got a, I got a, my glider is, uh, got a, it's a 15 meter glider. So that's 50 feet between wingtip to wingtip. So I think I can be quite a ways away. (laughs) Good. All right. Well, good deal. Hopefully the weather will break and you'll be back in the action here. And Mr. Gary, how's it going with you? Oh, doing pretty well. We just have a little bit of snow that came through last night, so the roads were pretty mushy. Um, So it's still just very lightly coming down here now. I'm hoping this stuff will clear out a little bit by the weekend, so perhaps I can get a flight in as well. Yeah, and uh, I was just thinking, Gary, um, for for someone who is super busy at work and doing all that, you still seem to be racking up some flights every now and then. I still see you posting, you know, videos of flying back in the mountains and over snow-covered peaks, and I don't know how you find the time to get it all done. Well, you know me, I, I, I do like to fly. If I can squeak in, I will. Uh, last couple of days I wanted to go out, I just had a nagging suspicion the winds weren't quite right. And, you know, uh, it was looking fairly calm. But, you know, five minutes later, when they switched the Aegis around the AWAS, it started picking up and blowing again. So the winds have just been squirrely. And they, they tend to do that this time of season anywhere here around the Rockies. So 
it's always kind of hit and miss. Yeah. All right. Well, won't be long now, and then the uh, the good stretch of flying weather will be here. That's my goal. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's turn it over to our guest, Jake Logan. And Jake, um, first off, thanks for taking some time to coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, looking forward to it. And Jake, did you say your dad was joining us as well? Uh, he's here at the table uh, uh, enjoying some beer, but uh, I don't know that he's going to chime in too much. Okay. Here. Well, and just I guess maybe I should have I should have prefaced this. Um, you constructed your project uh, with your father as your build partner, correct? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, it worked out really well. Um, I don't know how that'd work out for every father-son relationship, but uh, it worked out pretty good for us. And while I was traveling for work, I had somebody to keep picking away at the projects. So, I think it sounds like a great deal. Um, Any time that you can bring people together on a common goal, um, there may be a few bumps along the way, but I think overall it's going to be a tremendously positive experience. Yeah, and uh, I think you're building an airplane with your son. Is that is that uh, kind of the same case? Yeah, it, it um, maybe ours is a little different because um, I do more of kind of you know showing my son Isaac, showing him what to do kind of helping him come up with a plan and sort of guiding and mentoring him through the build. But I'm pretty bad about making him do all the work. Occasionally I'll, you know, pull Clecos and and drill rivets out if that's the kind of stuff that needs to be done. But if he's bending parts and making things and doing stuff like that, um, I'm making him do all the work and I just kind of watch along and give him some tips and double check everything. So, but that has been really, really good. I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. Jeff just yeah. acts like the jefe, you know. He's he's the big boss <laughs> with, with the whip and all, just to get the slaves and and minions doing their deeds. I have I have a top hat and a monocle, and I wear them when I'm in the shop. Good deal. <laughs> yeah. I found that I was always the one that uh, had to be upside down under the panel and everything else. All the all the dirty jobs got to be. Uh, well, yeah, and, and I was the one that just throwing out hundred dollar bills. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, I split a lot of the. It was a little one-sided, I think. <laughs> right. Why couldn't I get a partner with the head of the $100 bills to throw? <laughs> well, I don't miss the, those uh, those panel diving sessions where you got to contort yourself to crawl into some little crack and do something. Yeah, we made some modifications. That actually helped that a lot. Um, so we had a very limited stuff we had to really get up under there to do. Yeah. Um, we talked about some of those. Okay, well, Jake, let's do this. Um, just give us a quick, uh, a quick background on how you kind of got started on your Sonics, um, however far back you want to go, but just kind of get us to the point that you know you conceived of the project, and then kind of tell us what your goal and and the mission that you were building for, and I think that'll tee us up to go into some of the the customizations that you did. Sure. Yeah. So. Um... Uh, I've got my private um, instrument, multi-engine, and seems to be commercial. And Dad has his light sport license. Um, so we were really looking for an airplane that was kind of, I wanted the most out of an airplane I could get, but we were kind of limited on what Dad could fly with just being light sport. Um, so Sonic seemed to be a good fit on on the best of both worlds for that as far as speed and flight characteristics. Uh, so that's kind of why we chose the Sonics. Um, and we ended up finding a project that had been started. The fuselage was uh, mostly built, um, and we drove up to Maine and uh, purchased it. 
that guy in Maine purchased the kit from a guy in Georgia who actually built the um, the fuselage. And the guy in Maine bought uh, the rest of the kit, pre-built spars, pretty much everything to finish the airplane besides engine avionics. Um, so we would drove up there and purchase all that. He had never even pulled a rivet on the airplane. Uh, so we purchased that. Um, took us about three and a half years to finish it off. Uh, but our main goal was, uh, dad's goal was just to fly for fun. My main goal was, uh, to build time for my commercial rating, um, and do uh, a lot of training. I've been doing my commercial training in the airplane also. Uh, and I was scheduled to do my commercial check ride in the airplane, but that uh, has gotten postponed twice now, uh, due to the virus. Uh, so that's no fun. Three days before my check ride, it kind of got everything kind of let loose and I got postponed so now we're doing annual and it's kind of stuck until we get that done so that's kind of where we're at why we chose the sonics and uh jake i got a question for you sure um so you're you're going to do your check ride for your commercial power uh in the in the sonics yep I thought yeah. you needed to have a uh, a complex aircraft to do that. Well, you have to have. They changed that uh, about a year ago, um, so you have to, you still have to have all the complex time, uh, but the actual check uh-huh. ride does no longer have to be in a complex aircraft. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So yeah, it worked out worked out in my favor. And Jake, how much of the training did you do in the Sonics? So I had I got up to the 250 hours um, that I needed on my own doing my I did the cross long cross country uh, flight which is 250 miles in a straight line that you have to have I did all that in the Sun X and kind of in all my night flight I did in the Sun X kind of building up all the requirements I needed um, and then there's a couple of cross countries you have to do a day and a night with an instructor um, so we did that in the Sun X. And it was a great way to do it because saving not having to rent an airplane. I mean, that's just saving me money uh, like crazy. And um, so those went really well. Um, the Sonics does great um, for me and my instructor. We're not too big guys, so it does real well. And I have an auxiliary fuel system um, that allows uh, those cross countries without having to refuel. Jake, I know that a lot of guys have had concerns whether or not they would find instructors uh, to do time with them in their experimental aircraft. Uh, have you found more than one instructor that would do that with you, or do you think there would have been another problem? Now, our my instructor, he was uh, pretty. He's done several experimental aircraft, um, the Hill Training Airplane or the School's Airplane. We have a pretty large flight school here, um, but he's really willing to. Um, the DPE was a little hesitant just because he's a real small guy, but he was kind of concerned of fitting in the airplane. Two people, he said, he's never really considered the Sonics as a two-place airplane. Um, so I kind of talked to him and sent him a bunch of photos and things and, and he agreed to it after speaking with the instructor as well. So we're all set up to do that. We're just kind of waiting on the right time to do it now. That's good news. Yeah. And the commercial maneuvers are lazy eights and chandelles and spiraling descents. And the Sonics does a really great job at doing all those maneuvers. I'm sure you guys know that. Um, so it's been a lot of fun just practicing the maneuvers cause it's, it's, they're a piece of cake to do in the Sonics. That sounds like a really good way to, I guess, make your budget work out. You know, if you're, like you say, if you're if you're just building time and you're not renting the airplane, 
uh, at a premium price, you could save a significant amount of money doing it that way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I've, I was running for $150 an hour, uh, Grumman Traveler as 135 plus instructor. So yeah, it's, and spending, you know, $30 in fuel an hour plus a little maintenance cost, you're really saving, saving quite a bit over the, over the long haul. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's cool. Now you haven't, uh, you have a major, uh, Sonics uh, IFR rated, have you? No, I could do it. I would need a certified GPS would be the only thing I would need. It'd be nice. I don't know if I would fly a high IFR or hard IFR, but to pass through a, a layer or something, um, I think it'd be fine for that. I don't know about flying a hard IFR. And well, Jake, actually, you can do it much cheaper than that. Uh, in my route, I went with just basically with the, with the old-fashioned VOR system. That you can gotcha. acquire much cheaper than a GPS, and that does allow you to basically file and get into the system. Gotcha. Yeah, that'd be an option as well. Um, I don't know how. I know RVOR around here is getting decommissioned in a year or two, um, so I don't know how how viable option that'll be for for long the long haul. Well, VOR system is going to be around for the next fifteen years or more at least. So. If you could just find another one nearby if you needed to do your uh, your approaches to or something along those lines. But it basically, again, a bit, just as long as you have it, you can do your 30-day VOR uh, checks. Again, it does give you the ability to be able to fly a file IFR and get through the layers like you were talking about, which is the primary reason I put one in as well. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely been days where I'm, you know, just dodging clouds and stuff where it'd be just, just nice to fly right through them, but... Maybe that's a, a future airplane. Well, Jake, uh, let's let's talk about the modifications that you made, and I, I want to make sure that we, we kind of that you break it down into the things that you kind of thought of. These are all things that I, I want to incorporate while we're building. I can I can foresee a need and a benefit to doing it, and then maybe some of the things that maybe you thought of later later in the build process or even after it was flying. So. Where do, you, where do you want to kind of start on talking about your mods? Sure. Yeah, um, I will, I've got a list here, so I'll just kind of go down the list and so we can see what conversation spurs from those. Yeah, good. Um, so basically, we built our Sonics to, to work on. I was an auto mechanic for 12 years, and my dad's done maintenance his whole life. Um, so we work on stuff all the time, and we know how big of a pain it can be if you get something that wasn't really designed to work on real easily. Um, so that was kind of the main goal of the Sonics is we wanted to build it easy to work on if we had to do ever do any maintenance. Uh, so the first thing we did was an opening cowling. Uh, we had the vertically split cowling. Uh, so you're really limited on taking that thing off to really do any type of easy maintenance. Um, it's kind of a pain to take off. So we actually made it uh, hinged where you can open either side on the top. Or you could take the whole top section off, uh, almost like the um, horizontal split cowling now. Um, and it's been a great modification. It's saved tons and tons of time, uh, just even just to peek in there real quick, just to you know check for oil leaks and things like that. Um, so anybody with that vertical split cowling, that's a great mod to do while you're building. So, so Jake, I'll put a couple of pictures uh, in the show notes of your, your cowl, but... For those people that are not looking at it right now, describe how this thing works and kind of paint a picture for us. 
Sure. Yeah, basically there's a, uh, a piano hinge in the middle of the cowling at the top and one on each side. And there's a cut, uh, cut along the front. And there's just quick fasteners around the top and the front. And really, you can pull either side, take out those fasteners, and pull the hinge pin. You can open up either the left or right side. Or if you want to take off the whole top, you can pull that center pin as well and just lift that whole uh, whole top section off. So it's kind of like adding a flip-top hood where you can just raise the whole side up and peek down in there. Exactly. And actually, the hinge pin's double as a hood prop. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then what kind of modifications, other than just adding the hinges and you know, making the cutouts, what else did you have to do to, to execute this? Sure. Yeah. To execute it, to make it strong enough, you actually have to, um, reinforce it. Uh, it'd be really, really flimsy just making those cuts. Um, and you really weaken the cowling. So we actually used, um, foam, um, actually foam from, uh, Menards local hardware store. Uh, so we use that like foam insulation and then uh, fiberglass over that. And it really strengthened it up. One thing you got to be careful when you're using those types of foams is the resins that you're using because it'll really eat the foam if you don't choose the right resins. So you made like a kind of like you turn the cowling into a sandwich construction where you have the existing fiberglass cowl, then you add on uh, um, an inner layer of foam, and then you glass on over the top of the foam to create the other end of the sandwich. Exactly, yeah. And the foam doesn't have to be real thick, but it kind of needs to be there. And you kind of have to play with, um, you know, you might have obstructions on your engine or things, kind of to how you shape that foam in there. Um, and there, I sent Jeff some good uh, photos of those. So hopefully uh, that'll kind of give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Uh, but it doesn't, take a, a little, it doesn't take a lot of foam to add a lot of strength. Now, you talked about resin compatibility. What did you find? Like what worked, what doesn't work? Um, so your off-the-shelf uh, fiberglass resin will eat that foam um, that you'd buy, you know, locally anywhere really uh, for like typical body work. Um, so we ended up using the Aeropoxy foam, uh, which is really popular, I think, with the canard guys that are building composite airplanes, and that seemed to work really well. Um, so we did a few test samples and kind of played with it to see what would react and what wouldn't. And that uh, it's more, more a lot more expensive to go that route as far as the resins go. Um, but it's really what you have to use um, unless you could find maybe some other type of foam that would uh, not react with the standard fiberglass resin. Hmm. And did you find that out the hard way or did you kind of already know that? The hard way. Yeah. I mean, if we... <laughs> I've got a buddy who's big into composites, so, you know, if I would just, he's always dogging me about the composites are the way to go, but I try to, try to do it my own way and I should just listen. But. <laughs> I'm envisioning like a, a perfectly cut stiffener panel and you're like, okay, it's perfect. Now time to laminate some epoxy and some cloth over it and it turns <laughs> to goo and like melts underneath it. Yeah, we did, we actually made some test panels aside from our actual cowling uh, to test all this on to not ruin the actual thing. But yeah, it took us it took some trial and error. Um, now that I've done it, you guys can learn from all my uh, hardships. But uh, yeah, so or you can look up the um, all the canard guys are using all the same stuff, and it it works great. Yeah. Uh, now that you've you know finished the project and you kind of look back on it, were there any uh, modifications that you would recommend for uh, like version two? Uh, for version two, the cowling, um, 
it's pretty solid. Um, there's not a whole lot I would change other than we used on the top, we used like the Zeus fasteners. And on the front, we use just uh, like Phillips screws. Um, they're, they're threaded into nut plates. Um, the, we just use what we had laying around the shop. We were kind of on a time crunch um, towards the end of the project. Our um, DAR that we wanted to use was actually our tech counselor as well, and he was retiring. Um, so we were kind of the, on the race. We finished up a week before his retirement. And so we were, we got our inspection done just in the nick of time for him to decide that he wasn't going to retire after all. (laughs) (laughs) So the, uh, the FAA actually came out and did his inspection of him doing the, his inspection on our plane all at the same time. So we had a double inspection there. Um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm glad that worked out. Um, it's always a little dicey to be a training aid in an FAA, you know, process. It sounds like it worked (laughs) out. Yeah, yeah. The FAA guy didn't really uh, pay too much attention to the airplane. He looked it over real quick, but uh, he was really more to observe the uh, the DAR. Hmm. Well, there's nothing like a time crunch to bring uh, it into my focus. Commercial, my commercial glider uh, review was done under the eyes of an FAA inspector inspecting my uh, CD, uh, my, my examiner. So that was fun. Yeah, it adds a little bit of more excitement to everything. Actually, it was more fun watching the uh, my examiner than it was the FAA guy. <laughs> He's sweating a little uh, bit. He was he was sweating. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you guys should have been able to charge your examiner for allowing you to use your aircraft in your check ride for his his purposes. You, you got a significant discount there, didn't you? Yeah, we actually didn't get I, charged at all. Okay. Yeah, I didn't either. I didn't either. Which our our uh, DAR is a member of our EAA chapter, so he wasn't going to charge us either way, but it worked out real well. Okay, well, so the cow was a big success. Uh, would you recommend other people consider doing something similar? Yeah, and another modification we did on the cowling was uh, we did a hinged uh, fuel doors and oil access doors. Uh, with Hartwell style latches, uh-huh. uh, those are that's a great mod. Uh, just beats taking out some screws every time you have to check your oil or or add fuel. We picked up those latches actually at the Oshkosh Aeromart for. We found a uh, old Cessna style panel that had a couple latches in it for five bucks, and those latches are like sixty dollars a piece or something crazy. Right, yeah, that's the way to go. Occasionally, you'll see them in a, a bargain bin someplace or on eBay or you know part swap. Uh, and, and they're always dirt cheap if you can get them that way. But if you try to go source them new, yeah, you're paying top dollar for those things. So if you see them, scarf those things up and put them away for next time. Yep. Yeah, I think I had one for 10 years before I finally got one put on my last project. I'm just glad I had them. Yeah, it's really nice add-on. It's simple to do, and it really is the time-saving and has a nice look to it other than screws. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, what's next? Okay, so a uh, removable windshield. Now, so, removable, like, take it completely off? Yep, take it completely off. Okay, well, I guess the first question is, uh, what prompted you to consider that? And then tell us how you did it and all that. Okay, sure. Yeah, so really, there was no main reason other than to gain easier access to behind our instrument panel 
and we made some removable panels uh, on the glare shield um, to where you can really get down there inside the, uh, behind the panel um, to inspect wiring and do any type of maintenance back there. Um, so just removing the windshield allows uh, easy access to behind the, the panel there. One mod that we didn't do was a removable glare shield. Um, our whole instrument panel is removable, um, so it's not really necessary to, I think we can pull that tank if we'd ever have an issue without removing that uh, glare shield. So, But the removable windshield is all installed with nut plates, and we did kind of a cool metal trim around our uh, windshield and canopy, um, almost really similar to what the B model has now. Um, that adds a little ridgeness to the uh, the windshield as well uh, as you're removing it in and out, and it can be removed in five minutes or so um, by yourself. Now, how did you add nut plates? Because normally the, the plexi is on the inside and the nut would just sit against the plexi. Yeah, there's a another piece of metal trim that goes inside there. Okay, so like it sandwiches the plexi between the, the yeah, side skin and the nut plate strip. Exactly. Okay. Boy, I tried to do one of those and I had a heck of a time trying to get all those things lining up. Did you use floating nut plates? No, they're all riveted in there. Uh, you just got better skill than I do, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> it's one at a time. That's the way to do it. <laughs> but that's been, we've had that windshield in and out uh, several times, and it's been a great add-on uh, just to get behind that panel and figure things out if, we, if you run into trouble, especially when you're first, your first few hours, you're, there's always something you're troubleshooting. Yeah, and those far, very farthest forward um, screws that hold the windshield on, you need like six-foot arms to be able to get in there. It's just impossible. Yep. Yeah, okay, well, that's cool. And uh, is there any any risk of damaging the, the canopy, the, the, the forward Lexan, by taking it in and out, or does it come out and go back in with no problem? Yeah, it really comes out and in with no problem. Like I said, we have that metal kind of uh, trim around the edge, uh, and I don't know if that helps us a lot or not, but um, we've really—I mean—we've probably had it out of there in and out twenty times, and really haven't had an issue with it. Yeah. Well, as kind of a related um, comment, you really got to think about you know future access to that whole area, uh, whether it's the the canopy or the glare shield or the panel. You are going to need to get in behind the panel, and you're going to need to do something in that general area. So it behooves you to do some sort of access to the behind the panel area, whether that's access panels that you cut into the glare shield, like what you did, whether that's a removable panel, uh, a hinge down panel, something. You really got to think through, you know, what happens when you have that indicator light that's good for the next 20 years, but it burns out on a, on a random thing, and now you got to change it. You know, something simple like that. Yep. Yeah, and we made our kind of our instrument panels removable too, and we have a lower panel that has all the. Uh, uh, we have a fl uh, flight composite, I believe is the name. It's a switch panel and a breaker panel on one, um, and that's all set below with our throttle and everything. So that's all removable, and we can remove the EFIS and everything on its own as well. Uh, so it's really designed where we can really access any part of that panel uh, fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Now, how beneficial were the access panels in the glare shield? It's great. Like, uh, for example, we're doing our annual inspection now, um, but to be able to open that up and inspect the wiring uh, really easy. We've been tr having a breaker problem um, popping in. We were able to track that down really easily without having to try to get up. There's no way I don't think we could uh, get up under there um, from the bottom and really, really look in there good. Um, 
and being able to just stand on the ground and look in there, uh, it's just so nice and so trying to curl up underneath that panel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that sounds good. Um, what else? What's next? Uh, next, auxiliary fuel system. So I know this has been talked about before, and I don't know if we did anything too crazy than anybody else did, but we have a, uh, a 7.75 gallon ox fuel tank. Uh, it's an aluminum like dune buggy style tank. Uh, it's kind of mounted uh, behind the seat uh, towards like your lower back where that would be. Uh, and it's worked out really well for us. There's a uh, We have a facet uh, transfer pump. Um, there's an inline fuel filter. Uh, there's a pressure switch in line that turns on a light in the dash or in the panel um, to indicate when you have fuel pressure built up in those lines and it's pumping. And then there's a backflow valve uh, at the tank that would allow not allow that main tank to flow back into that aux. And then we have a nice external fuel fill that's actually mounted on the side of the airplane where they can just uh, FBO can fill it right there from the side of the airplane. Now, two things. Um, I'm assuming that you're you're dumping fuel into the upper sight glass fitting, or did you add a special oops fitting or something like that? No, we're we're dumping into the upper the upper hole. Okay. And then secondly, um, where did you source all your external fill hardware? You know, tell us about what you used and how you pulled it off. Sure. Uh, I believe that was all from Summit Racing, as far as the uh, the actual fill, and then it was an aluminum elbow uh, that bends down. Um, to go down to the tank and there's some rubber hose that kind of connect the, uh, the fill and that elbow. Uh, and that was, that elbow was just sourced off of eBay. I believe it was, um, that'd be the only thing I would change is where that fill comes in. It kind of comes in straight and then turns down. Um, so I actually had to make a special funnel that kind of reached in there to fuel it with. Um, so if I were to do it again, and it might be a modification we do is where that, the elbow really needs to be more of a direct line down to the tank instead of coming in and then turning. If that makes sense, the fuel kind of run out um, as you're filling it, uh, just because it has to kind of yeah, go in straight and run down. Ninety degrees instead yeah. of forty-five. It's more of a ninety instead of a forty-five. Yeah, so okay. I made of a a funnel to kind of compensate for that, but to do it again, I would definitely uh, change the geometry of that a little bit. Okay. Now, does that need a new, um, like, fill cap and all that at the fuselage, or is it just the, the plumbing that connects the fill port to the tank itself? Yeah, so there's the external fill cap. Um, it's nice. It's aluminum. It blends right into the side of the fuselage. You can't really – it's hard to notice, um, but it's, the uh, cap's all built into it. Um, so you, you have your auxiliary fuel on the side of the plane and then one up at the front. Yeah, okay. And I'll try. To, I'll give you some photos of that, Jeff. Mm-hmm. And then, how did you mount the the dune buggy tank behind the seat? Where did you tie sure. in, and how did you clamp it, and all that? Yeah, it came with uh, clamps to do it, and we built some um, stands off the floor. Yeah, some stands that come off the floor, and it's uh, it's tied into there, and then the uh, that cross member there in the front, or right below the seat there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's, it's it sounds like it's pretty rigidly mounted. Yeah, it's very rigid mounted, yep. That's always yeah, one of the... A sump on that as well, so you can you know make sure there's no water or anything in there. Yeah, that's one of the things that you know I always kind of thought about. Um, my little external portable boat tank, I can set it in the baggage compartment, or I can set it on the seat next to me. And um, it always just kind of goes through my head, 
you know, that's uh, 60 pounds. Well, not not quite that. You know, the, the, the weight of the tank and then the weight of the fuel, it's probably in the 40 to 50 pound range. And if that thing were to get jostled around, that could that could make things unpleasant if it was, uh, you know, running into me. And uh, sure. I, I really like the idea of having the auxiliary tank firmly and permanently bolted to the airframe where it's not going to shift around. Yeah, and it's we our CG we have the Jabber 3300 and it's a tri gear, so our CG is really at the forward limit, uh, empty. Um, so we can have that ox tank full of fuel and still put another 40 pounds of baggage back there and still be within CG limits. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how the tailwheel uh, balances out, but that's something to keep in mind. Uh, Jeff, I have I have the uh, the boat tank you know, usually strapped into the seat belt next to me when I'm doing the auxiliary tank. And I had a <clears throat> situation flying around the Bravo airspace of Denver and let my, uh, my um, altitude uh, get away from me and ended up pushing the stick down really hard to make sure I didn't bust up uh, Bravo. And that tank came out of its little straps and started floating around the cockpit with me. Hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's uh, it's definitely an issue. I'd rather have a uh, permanently mounted tank. Yeah, yeah, that's it's a great option. We actually built uh, an aluminum floor above that that's removable, um, and that kind of raises the baggage area up. Um, gives you a nice where you can actually reach back there and grab stuff in flight if you would need to. Yeah, that's one of the downsides of using a seat back location or in the baggage compartment itself. It does remove some of your capacity that you could be using for baggage. But like you just said, with the normal full-size baggage compartment, it's pretty hard to reach behind you and get something that's all the way down on the floor. Uh, maybe a passenger can pull it off, but it's a pretty big distraction as the pilot. And then having essentially uh, like a, a deep hat shelf uh, would make it a lot easier to access that stuff in flight. So maybe the trade-off is not that big of a deal. Yeah, it's great to keep. I keep a towel back there just in case it starts raining. We all know how the uh, Sonics likes uh, to leak a little bit. Uh, so that's nice to keep back there in easy reach and sunglasses, uh, things like that. Um, it's really easy to, just to reach back there and grab them instead of having to try to dig around back way back down there. Yeah, I think that that Sonics towel is detailed on one of the Z figures on the plan sheet. It's the Sonics towel. It's got a part <laughs> number and everything. Yeah, yeah, it probably does. <laughs> All right. Uh, so how often do you find yourself using your auxiliary fuel system? Uh, when I was doing my phase um, phase one flight testing, so... I use it quite a bit uh, for that. Well, one for testing CG and all that uh, with it in there. Um, but to really do some longer flights, uh, we've got our airworthiness uh, like April 24th of last year. And first flight was May 4th, I believe. And we were really trying to make Oshkosh. Uh, so it was nice to get up there and fly for, I would fly for four or five hours sometimes. Um, just trying to beat that Oshkosh deadline. So I ended up leaving for, for Oshkosh with 43 hours on the airplane. Hmm. So you had a really, really, you know, condensed uh, amount amount of like days that you did your phase one. How did that go? It went over. Uh, we used the, uh, the, the new EAA uh, phase one flight test manual. 
so we started out using that, and it went pretty good uh, following those. Uh, give you a, kind of a good idea how the airplane is going to handle. Uh, so that flight testing, flight test went really good. First flight, we had a, uh, it really wanted to bank to the left uh, pretty hard. Um, so first flight lasted about 15 minutes and came down uh, just to the left uh, flap down to kind of pick that wing up. Took it back up, still the same thing. Over several flights, kept doing that. It would get a little bit better, but not not much of a change um, until I noticed that there was enough air movement over that. Really, it was just picking it back up uh, tight against that wing. Um, it's really where we were adjusting. It wasn't making a whole lot of uh, change. So we ended up doing a flap adjustable flap stops inside the wing there uh, where we can back them out to kind of limit how far that flap can come up. Yeah. So now that you've got it dialed in, how much different are the position of the flaps? Quarter inch. Yeah, quarter inch or so. It's, it's noticeable uh, on the ground, but you really don't notice it in the air. Yeah, no, I'm just curious because, you know, lowering one flap, you know, uh, has been a, a really common way to, to correct a little bit of roll tendency. But you're right. Um, the whole flap system is relatively flexible. If it's not up against a hard stop or being held in the down position by the flap handle or the, the linear actuator, um, the whole system kind of just floats through a range there unless something is driving it. So without a, a positive upper engagement stop, um, it, it will just kind of flex around and kind of just find its own spot. And so you really need, if you're, if you're more than just a little bit off, um, you really need to have something that will positively hold that flap where you want it to. Yep. Yeah, and I think Peter Anson offers uh, adjustable flat stop, um, and we kind of copied his design a little bit and, and made one ourselves. Uh, yeah, but it, it works great. Um, maybe down the road we'll try to, to tweak it uh, to where we don't need those flap stops, but it's, it was really not something you really, you know, that bank wasn't horrible, but it's just enough to make you feel uncomfortable where you really won't want to fool with it again. Yeah, I think they're a good solution. You know, the amount of drag that you're in, introducing into the plane and having the flap hanging down slightly is minuscule. And, you know, we see this all the time. When we do a normal takeoff, oftentimes you take off with uh, the first notch of flaps down. And that's way more deployment than you're going to see in um, in just tweaking the flap, in, you know, like what you're talking about. And the, the amount of drag that you pick up in that first notch of flaps is pretty low. You know, you get a little more lift, but you, you don't get a lot of drag correspondingly. So anybody that gets too overly worked up over dropping one flap down a little bit to trim the airplane out, they're probably just worrying about stuff that they don't need to be worried about. Right. Yep. Yeah, so that's kind of how the first flights went. Uh, around 15 hours of flight time, I had the uh, – a rudder return spring break in flight. Um, and we had kind of debated about installing those to begin with, and we installed them. Um, so it broke in flight, and I kind of immediately knew what happened. I felt it hit my foot, um, and the plane started to yaw. Uh, so it was an immediate, it wasn't an emergency situation, but it was a pretty much immediate return to the airport. Uh, so leg was a little tired, but uh, got it down just fine. Uh, so that's something. I talked to Sonics about, and they said, you know, those are really there to keep the rudder from blowing a lot on the ground and keep the cables tight. Um, so I've been flying 100 hours without them on there. 
And yeah, the rudder blows around on the ground. I made a, a stop that you can put on there on, on the tail to keep it from blowing around if you're parked. Um, but really, other than that, I really haven't noticed a difference without them on there. Yeah, and there have been other people who have noticed the same thing. S- similar type story. Um, one broke at some point and they just took the other one off and they never thought too much about it. So it's good to know that that's an option and um, not something that's going to cause a, a controllability problem in flight, should it happen. Yeah, I've yeah, flown um, half, a dozen, half a dozen gliders and none of them have them. So, you know, I'm not, I don't know if it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that probably it's something to look at when you're fabricating those springs. You get the, the long... It's like a screen door spring or something like that, but it's just a, a length of, yep. of spring. And so you have to straighten out several coils to make a long enough attachment hook and then, you know, fabricate a little hook out of those coils you straightened to, to, to hook on. And if you get a little bit of a stress riser from the, the tip of your pliers or something like that, um, you can introduce a crack that can make that hook fail. And so if you're going to fabricate them, you really need to be very careful on how you fabricate them so as not to put those little kinks or stress risers that ultimately will break. Exactly. That's what exactly broke on ours was one of the hooks broke off. Yeah. And it's Gary, it's, does the uh, 750 have them? Gary, you're on mute. Gary. Uh, there I am. I'm back. I'm sorry I missed part of that one. You were asking about hooks? Uh, do well, does it have the uh, uh, the rudder springs to return the rudder to center? No, uh, no, it doesn't. No, it's uh, it's the the system in ours is a little bit different. Um, our rudders, as as they attach to the steering there on the post, is interconnected to the front landing gear strut or, or tube for the nose gear. And what that strut rests on is basically a, a V-shaped nylon type of block. And so that V-shape kind of makes up for replaces rudder springs, if that kind of makes sense to you. Because it just kind of cradles down the V. And then as you exert a little bit of pressure on either side of the rudders, it easily comes out of the V. Uh, but it does return pretty much to that uh, self-correcting and, and trimmed position. Did I lose you? No, we were just listening to your description. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so well, it sounds like it's fairly common with or without on a lot of airplanes. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, Jake, you mentioned 43 hours on the plane. And uh, I think that, you know, that shows, um, I guess, maybe a, a level of focus and commitment. If you're going to really, really hustle through your fly-off period, get all your flight testing done, get comfortable in the airplane, and then blast off on a on a cross-country. I don't know how far it is from you to Oshkosh, but still, you know, that, that shows that you've got a high degree of confidence if you're going to take this thing out uh, into the hinterlands. <laughs> sure, yeah, and doing some of those longer test flights, uh, you know, for, it's about a three-hour flight uh, to Oshkosh from, from Indiana here, and... Um, I didn't go over the lake route. Uh, I went around Chicago and kind of took the longer route with only 43 hours. Um, but yeah, doing some of those longer test flight periods, um, I knew the airplane would perform for a few hours um, easily uh, without issues. So that gave me confidence in the airplane. And yeah, it was really an uneventful flight. Uh, a week or so, about a week before I was supposed to leave to Oshkosh, 
Uh, I've got the Jabber 3300A engine, uh, and it's got oil tees, uh, rubber oil tees that go between the cylinder heads to lubricate. And I had one of those fail on me. So I was, you know, a week from Oshkosh. I've done all this time. I got to make it to Oshkosh. So the hanger next to me, a guy is building a Murphy Maverick, and he's got a Jabiru 2200 uh, with the, the 2200A. And he let me steal one of his tees off his engine so I can make Oshkosh. So that was a little excitement right before the trip. But it was flying into Oshkosh. It was awesome and camping. And it's being my first time there with the new airplane. They sang, sang a song to me, and I got a – perseverance award and got a nice little plaque and that was a great time definitely worth doing yeah <laughs> i i got one of those too and i really appreciate it i thought that was a great touch yeah it was yeah it's funny uh, jake and gary um the the crew that sings that song is my local chapter here in chapter 91 in kansas city so that's part oh, of that nice. contribution <laughs> and you can see the quality of our singing voices yeah <laughs> Well, when that rubber tee failed, um, was that a high drama event, or did you just notice that you had a bunch of oil leaking uh, around the engine? You know, I didn't even notice. Um, I had done a, just a short flight and came back and landed and, and put the plane away and left for the day. And uh, my hangar is uh, connected to actually another hangar. There used to be a flight school. Um, and that guy, I actually stopped by and just noticed a puddle of oil under my airplane and called me and went out there and found the crack in the tee. So this annual, I'm replacing uh, all those T's. Yeah. But yeah, other than that, I really haven't had any issues uh, other than I was plagued with flat tires there for a little bit. And uh, Was that with the standard <laughs> you know, tires and, and tubes? Yeah, yeah, it was. And uh, yeah, it was the first one. I've had two. The first one, uh, I was about 150 miles or so from home, and it happened. I flew down to give my uncle an airplane ride. So I got done with the ride. It was great. We went and had lunch and went to leave, taxiing back out, and then tire went flat. Just out of nowhere. Right in the middle of the taxiway. Hmm. And you're just kind of stuck there. And we had followed the plans. And to actually to get that tire off, following the plans to a T, you've got to remove the seat to pull the, the gear fairing pin out. And that will allow you to get to the wheel pant to pull it off. And then you can get the tire. So we kind of pushed the airplane off into the grass and did all that. And the airport manager there was also an AMP, so he let us use the jack and stuff. And the nice part about being experimental, we ran down to TSC, picked up an inner tube, and we were back going within an hour. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's we've made some modifications now to make uh, to make it where you not to pull the seat off if you get a flat tire. But stripping the whole out beside the taxiway wasn't a whole lot of fun. Yeah, again, um, one of those little things that just makes maintaining it a lot easier. I was never a fan of having that hinge pin, you know, do that. Yeah, so our fix was to kind of make a split pin. Um, half of it goes up to, into the fuselage and half of it goes down into the wheel pant. Uh, and that works really well. It's worked well. Um, and then I got a second flat tire, uh, New Year's Day, trying to go to a fly-in. And got a second flat tire, just taxing out to run away. Uh, so that was no fun. That's when we decided to make the the gear fairing modification. It took us two times to to learn, but uh, we made that modification. And at Angel here, we are uh, upgrading to the aeroclastic tires and new tubes, and hopefully that solves all our issues. 
Yeah. Now, what do you think was causing the flats to begin with? Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know if it was a little low on air. Air. Um, I've heard Michael Singleton and some other guys have told me when they were running lower air pressure, I think I was running around 35, um, that they were kind of having the same issues. And he had recommended running up to 45. And since I've done that, I haven't had any issues. Uh, so we'll see. I think I'm running 40 in these new Aero Classics. Uh, that was kind of what was recommended, I believe. So we'll see how how those go. They seem a lot, a lot um, more quality of attire. They're three times the price each, but uh, they seem worth it. We'll see. Yeah, with, with low tire pressure, one of the things that can happen is the, the tube can kind of rotate independently of the rim, and it puts stress on the valve stem itself. So if you're leaking around your valve stems or you rip the valve stem off, usually that's a result of having the tire pressure too low. But if sure. you have a if you have a pinch that kind of tears in the middle of the tube, sometimes, you know, if the two halves of the split rim are kind of flexing against each other, you, you know, you get this little pinching action right there at the split line and it can grab the tube and, and pinch it there as well. Yeah, and yeah, both of ours just had a small little hole in the side of the tube, uh, not near the valve. We'll see. Hopefully these new things uh, work out for us. And we actually developed uh, a jack. It weighs a pound. It's all aluminum, uh, small little portable jack. Um, so we're going to keep that in the airplane and uh, extra tube just in case. But it all, we can pretty much change a flat anywhere uh, with that that little jack. So Yeah, yeah all those little travel kit things, um, they seem like, you know, maybe a nice to have, but more or less kind of a waste of space to haul around with you all the time until you find yourself on the side of the taxiway. Then you really, really <laughs> exactly. wish you had it. Yeah. And this, this Zach, uh, Jack, we're making this kind of a prototype stage, but we've used it. Uh, it kind of all breaks down. It's less than a pound. It takes up really no room at all. Um, so I'm hoping uh, maybe we can sell some of those to, or uh, at least get plans out uh, for people to, to make them. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you'll like the larger tires. They they seem to wear pretty well. Um, just keeping track of my own usage on, on tires, you know, you'll get a couple hundred hours out of a set of tires easy. And that's just doing a lot of touch and goes on pavement. And if you don't do a lot of touch and goes or you fly off grass, they'll last, you know, far longer. Uh, Gary, I think you ran your tires, you know, an insane amount of time. But then again, you know, Gary knows how to be nice to his wheels, so... Well, I don't know. I, I was listening to uh, Jake and his pressures. After I popped a tailwheel on a mall that I had one year because of low tire pressures, I always kept my pressures up pretty high. And when I was doing the Sonics, I, if I remember, I think I jacked them all the way up to the max 50 PSI uh, and never had a never had a trouble with flats, fortunately. But you're right. I, I, I could get, you know, literally 500 landings or so easily out of a set of tires, though. Sure. Yeah, and running that pressure that high, I mean, the rim, the rims actually have like a recommended 30 PSI max or something. So it's like kind of always in the back of your man, mind, should I be running my pressures this high? But sounds like most everybody is without any issues. Yeah, I don't know why they have that on there. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what data they have that suggests that, you know, that's the appropriate max PSI. I hate to contradict the manufacturer, but sort of the, the community knowledge says there's really not a lot of problem running it higher. Yep. Yeah, that that rim can handle a lot more. I, I run mine at about 50 PSI, and I've never had a flat. 
And Jake, I thought I remembered you saying you were um, also changing your brakes. Yeah, so we were in the process of installing the O'Keefe hydraulic brakes. Uh, so we just started on those this week. Uh, I've got the master's so fair, uh, almost complete and kind of fabbing up, uh, laying out everything uh, now down below. And how are you going to do that? Just kind of walk us through your system. So what, right, what we have going on now is we kind of wanted to keep, uh, we're using the Sonex master cylinder. We actually had originally bought the aero conversion hydraulic brakes. Uh, and the more we looked at them, the more we didn't like the kind of the only pushing on one side and kind of side loading that bearing all the time. Uh, so that's where we went to the O'Keefe uh, hydraulics. And we, we're going to use the Sonics master cylinder setup. Um, you got that all mounted in the airplane. Kind of doing a little bit different where we're keeping our uh, brake handle mounted where it typically would be and using a short adjustable linkage between the master cylinder and brake handle. Um, just kind of keep the same feel and stuff what I'm used to. And the uh, hydraulic brakes that we're kind of still in the fab uh, fabbing stage, but we're going to add the Sonics has about one place where you could add a bolt. And I believe, Jeff, you have these same brakes. Um, so we're going to add a, one or two more uh, spots where you can bolt, bolt the bracket on there. Yeah, um, and, but, and I did that just out of an abundance of caution. I don't know if it's necessary or not. But, you know, there's the one little lug on the welded axle weldment. And that's what you would attach to your standard brake, your mechanical drum brake or the aero conversion hydraulic brake. And I just got to thinking, you know, stronger brakes, better stopping power. Yeah, you know, that, that one little lug, if that thing was to let go or just start to crack over time, it would be a maintenance problem down the road. So I welded on two additional lugs kind of at 90 degrees to the existing one. So now I have a T arrangement. I have three lugs that I can bolt up to. I'm not sure that that's entirely required, um, but they've been holding up really well. I'm at 400 plus hours and there hasn't been any any signs of uh, any sort of cracking or stress on those. So I think it's probably worth um, at least just taking a look at that as an option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the the bolts, I think, really are more there to, for like an anti-rotation of that bracket and assembly. Mm -hmm. uh, everything's kind of clamped together by that caliper. It's really not going to go anywhere. Right. Um, what kind of bolts did you end up using, Jeff? Were they countersunk bolts? Well, the issue we're running in now is the they include a two-inch spacer, uh, and it kind of pushes everything out a little too far where the axle nut doesn't really – it kind of just touches the end, lines up with the end of that axle. Um, so we shortened the spacer, um, but we're going to have to drill that axle for uh, for a new cotter pin, it looks like, and then possibly use some countersunk bolts to uh, bolt that bracket on. Yeah, and I had the same thing. Um, the axle nuts sit right at the very end, and so you got to be real careful with how you drill it. Um, otherwise, you're going to run out of meat in the axle to, to put that cotter pin hole. And then you need either countersunk or really, really low-profile heads, um, Otherwise, you're going to be rubbing into the disc itself, and so you don't want that to happen. Sure. Yeah, yeah. The supplied two-inch spacer I think would work, but it really puts that nut out there where you really don't want to be drilling for that cotter pin roll close to the edge. So we shortened. Uh, we made a couple other options to kind of play with space and um, back it up a little bit. So we've got to figure that out, and then the wheel pants. Um, you're going to take some modification, either widening them out or maybe even a different wheel pant. Yeah, and what I did on mine, um, I just cut the whole area around the calipers completely out of the wheel pant, and then you create a custom intersection fairing that goes over the brake caliper and screws into nut plates uh, on the inside of the wheel pant. 
and that um, that kind of wraps around the, the gear leg fairing and kind of holds the fairing in place and and really cleans up the look and the drag around the calipers. And that might be easier than trying to fit entirely new wheel pants. Now, if you just want a set of pressure recovery wheel pants, you know, that, that's always an option. But if you're looking for alternatives, uh, a custom intersection fairing is a way to go. That's it. Yeah, are you pretty happy, pleased with the brakes? Oh yeah, they're great. Um, I can, uh, I, I can, I have a little parking brake detent on mine. I can set the parking brake, and I can do a full power run up, and it doesn't creep at all. And uh, I get good, I get good stopping power. There's never any brake fading. The only thing that it, that's different about mine than yours, I use the um, the Hagar master cylinder, and. Um, it's not a very sophisticated master cylinder. There is no reservoir that replenishes the, the fluid. So as the brake pucks wear, the system needs additional fluid to take the volume from the lost brake puck. And um, about every mm-hmm. year when I do my annual, I have to rebleed the brakes to basically add more fluid into the cylinder because the pucks have been wearing down over, you know, 20, 30, 40 hours. Um, you have a, a master cylinder with a reservoir built in, so that's not going to be a problem for you. Yep. Yeah, I'm looking for the. We have the upgraded Sonics uh, drums and stuff, but they really about 1400 RPMs is about all I can get for a run up. Um, so I'm really looking forward to being able to run it up a little higher. Yeah, good brakes. Um, you take them for granted, and um, you know, not being able to set the brake and keep the airplane from wandering around. Uh, I, I don't know that I would necessarily be real happy with that at this point. So I think, I think whatever you can do to get brakes that work perfectly and reliably is time well spent. Yeah. It's, yeah. I'm hoping, hoping for the best here. I think we made a good, a good choice. And the sound, the air conversion brakes seem to have mixed reviews. A lot of people like them and some people haven't had a whole lot of luck with them. Um, so we'll see. Hopefully, we have the right choice. Yeah, I don't. Have, we've got uh, we've got the other ones in the hangar. I don't have a lot of direct experience with the the aero conversion hydraulic brakes. Uh, Isaac has them on his, so we're gonna we're gonna get more direct experience here coming up. But I think that I don't think that there's a, an inherent problem in the way they're designed. It's very very simple to just push on one side of the brake. Now, granted. You know, the brakes are essentially trying to push the wheel off of the axle. And so your your bearings and the and the axle nut have to retain all that. However, bearings are dirt cheap. So even if, you know, you start to get some accelerated wear in those bearings, you know, for 10 or 15 bucks, you can toss the old bearings in the trash and put new ones in. And, um, you know, that that's not a real significant thing. Um, probably the biggest thing is if they're not set up with the right clearances and things like that, you may have... Uh, poor braking performance unless you um, because because the 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 range of the calipers may not be sufficient so i think probably this is just me thinking here probably the setup is a little bit more fidgety with the aero conversions and once you get it set up right they work fine Um, and because the great planes are the o'keefe now because they have calipers that pinch the disc and they kind of float in the caliper holder the setup is a lot more forgiving and so i think they're a little easier to get right Sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, so yeah, that's expecting a couple of weeks to install on that, and hopefully be back flying here soon with those. Yeah. 
Now, Jake, um, we, we saw in your photos that you had experimented with vortex generators. So tell us about that. Yeah, so we went to a, a Sonics fly-in uh, in Illinois last year. And there was a Sonics there uh, with Vortex generators, and it was uh, the first one I had ever heard of doing it. And he was making some outrageous claims of 12-mile-an-hour slower stalls and 6-mile-an-hour faster. Um, so for $100 for the Vortex generator, he was like, well, I'll give it a shot and see. Um, even if I get half that, I'll be happy. So... Uh, we bought the uh, Stoll Speed uh, Vortex Generator Kit, uh, did the wings first, uh, and they're pretty simple to install. Uh, they kind of give you, you want to put them about seven millimeters of the cord line, I believe it was. Uh, so it, was, it worked out to about the second row back of rivets from the leading edge. Uh, you put the leading edge of those Vortex Generators. Uh, so you clean it with alcohol, and they stick on with uh, like a 3M double-sided tape. And so first flights, uh, so my airplane's fairly heavy. It's 752 empty, kind of with all the add-ons and being the tri-gear with the Jabiru. Um, so I've always stalled about 60 to 58 miles per hour. And I've tried everything. I thought I had uh, pedo issues and I wasn't getting correct readings, but I've checked and checked and it's that's what it is. So I was really looking for something uh, to slow that stall speed down a little bit. Uh, so I took it up, and first flights uh, with the Vortex generators, uh, I was stalling at 53. So 53 mile an hour, so about a five mile an hour uh, slower stall uh, with those Vortex generators. And I was really pleased with those. I really haven't noticed any gain in cruise speed, maybe even a mile or two hour uh, less um, in speeds. Definitely not what the, uh, the other guy was claiming, but uh, I've First takeoff, I immediately noticed it was felt a lot more stable um, climbing out. Not that it was unstable before, but it just felt more solid. And even land, landing approaches felt, felt feel more solid, too, with those uh, Vortex generators. Well, Jake, so I flew, flew Go ahead. I've used two sets of uh, Vortex generators, uh, a micro set that I used. It was certified for the mall. And then I, I used the... Uh, the stall speed on my Zenith recently too. Um, I, I did notice a slight reduction in, in stall, nothing particularly astounding, but what I did know, and I was wondering if you would verify this with yours, is I noticed that my stall basically just turns into a mush now. Um, same thing when I put it on the uh, vortex generators on the mall. Again, it wasn't so much of a break anymore unless there's a vertical shear, which is mush. Are you, are you getting a mush for the stall? Or are you actually still getting a, a definite break when you sure? So I was kind of, I was already getting a mush kind of before the vortex generators. Uh, unless I was real heavy um, or at gross weight, I could get it to break um, or really force it into a break. But it was just kind of mush down. Um, but yeah, I really haven't gotten a good break with the vortex generators now until I uh, decided to install them on the on the uh, horizontal stabilizer um so those go on the bottom and i was like okay well if i'm down to 53 and it, down there you kind of feel like you're losing a little bit of elevator authority so I was, i'll try them on the tail um so i tried those and it actually seemed like my stall speed went back up to where it was and um so i did a couple flights with those and um it kind of still mushed a little bit but then it it broke really hard on me one time, uh, made about a quarter of a turn of a spin, 
or kind of started to develop one and I came back and I just took them off it. There was no benefit to having them on the tail. Now, what I also did notice, particularly that I was really impressed with, though, on both times that I used Vortex generators, was increased roll authority uh, right near the stall. Were you able to notice much of an increase in your aileron effectiveness? I Yeah, I would say um, I would say there is a little bit. Uh, especially like slow flight seems to be a little bit more controllable during uh, slow flight. And the Sonics did pretty well, I thought, already. Um, but kind of doing these commercial training maneuvers and stuff, you're really pushing the plane to its limits, and, and it really does them well. Um, I, didn't, I hadn't done the maneuvers, those specific maneuvers without them, um, but it really does well. Uh, so I can't speak a whole lot of that, but it does feel slightly uh, better than what it was. Good, but I've never heard anybody actually claiming any increase in speed with Vortex generators. So I thought that was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, if anything, I think I maybe lost one or two mile an hour on the top end. No, I've never noticed a measurable reduction, but yeah, I've never noticed a gain though. So, but anyway. Yeah, and it, yeah, and it could just be you know, temp. It's all low end difference in the, in the day, but yeah, it's yeah, it's all low end gains uh, from what I can tell for the most part. So. Yeah, so yeah, that's uh, that was a, a great, I mean, for $100, if you can lower your stall speed even by a few mile an hour, I'd say it's worth it, um, and definitely controllability. Jake, th one of the things that's really hard about Vortex generators is it, it's a relatively complex um, formula to, to really get those things optimized. And so companies like the, the, the ones that are supplying them, these guys, they've done a lot of research on various airplanes and come up with some pretty good rules of thumb as to about where they ought to go. But even then, small differences have the potential to have a big change. So sure, you put them on and you put them on yeah. in, in a particular yeah. way and, uh, and you get a result. And then the next guy says, well, I want to get the same thing. They put them on even if it's just slightly different or their airplane is slightly different. Um, that could have a very big change in, in the results that they see. It's really hard to compare, you know, across the board um, how effective a set of, of vortex generators are going to be on your particular airplane. You kind of got to just dive in and experiment and see what you, you know, what you come up with. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we just followed the stall speed. Kind of had a, anywhere from ten to twelve uh, percent of the cord uh, is what they recommended, which puts the leading edge of those um, vortex generators about seven percent. Um, and then that's what we went with, and they said that's pretty common where that's kind of the best the best spot. And and they haven't noticed a huge gain moving them either way, uh, but yeah, it is definitely possible that there's a better spot for them. So my, my advice is if you're going to play with the Vortex generators and there's not a, a large body of experimental knowledge on exactly how to optimize them for your airplane, just be willing to, you know, maybe have results that are a little confusing, um, acknowledge that they may not be optimized on your first try, and, uh, and be patient with the results. And if you don't really want to do a lot of experimenting, Maybe you just, um, you know, put them on and see what you get and then make a decision on whether to keep them or remove them. Um, but it's uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm anxious to see, you know, all the data from the different people who have tried it kind of consolidated into one one bag so we can kind of see what people have done. Yeah, last I knew, Robbie Culver just installed some and he had a few flights on his. So anxious to hear what, what his experience is. 
Yeah. Now, you know, there, there's really two components to the, the gains from the VGs. You know, one are the, the stats, you know, how did the numbers change? And, you know, those are, are good to help quantify it. But kind of like what Gary talked about, I think a lot of the benefit is kind of a subjective assessment. How did it feel after you added the VGs? You know, was it more responsive down at the slow end speed? Was it a softer stall break or no stall break? Was it a more solid feeling on climb out? And I think that that's probably the right way to look at it is that that seems to be the most common uh, report from people that are flying them. They very often report some of those subjective handling improvements. It just feels better. It seems to do better at, you know, those type of things. And I think that's worth going after. Yeah, it almost makes you wonder. It's like, was it, is it just in my head? Do I just feel like it's better because I've got vortex generators on here now, or is it actually better? Well, I did clean some of the grime off my plane on my last flight, and I'm sure it flew faster. Hey, that's science. Uh, that's not that's <laughs> not in your head. <laughs> All right, so what we'll do is... Uh, yeah, for $100, it's a very cheap, uh, it's fairly inexpensive to just to play with. Even if you don't like them and take them off, you're out a hundred bucks. Or you could actually, I mean, they're reusable. You just have to replace the uh, the three M adhesive. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, next time we're all at a fly-in, uh, we'll have to do a double blind test, and we'll put John in a plane that he doesn't know what plane he's flying, and we'll make him go figure it out. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Is that any different than any other flying? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Jake, you'll have to continue to gather data and keep us updated on on how you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got yeah I've got 113 hours on the airplane now. Uh, it's been flying for just under a year, so not as many hours as I wanted, but pretty good for the first year of flight. Yeah. Now speaking of that, you mentioned that you're doing the annual now, and how's that going? Uh, it's actually annuals going really well. Um, had a prop tracking issue, uh, dealt with that. I'm actually looking to upgrade to Prince prop here, here in the new, uh, soon. Um, hoping for some better performance. I've kind of, I can't get more than 3,100 RPMs out of my engine and nothing, nothing seems to make a difference. I'm thinking my prop might be uh, pitched a little heavy. I've got the sense niche. Uh, so hoping that Prince prop might get me a little more RPM. Yeah, um, is this the standard Sonics recommended uh, Sensenic prop? Yeah, yeah. I think if you talk to Lonnie Prince and just tell him, you know, given the numbers that you're working with and and what you're currently flying, and he'll be able to tailor a prop to give you exactly what you want. Yep. But I would definitely talk to him first because if you just order the standard Sonics prop, you're not sure whether it's going to be, you know, a little bit too much pitch or a little under pitched or whatever. But if you if you call him up directly, I think he can nail it for you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to having that new prop, and it, it just looks cool. <laughs> so, yeah, the, other than that, uh, annual's going well. I've uh, pretty much completed the inspection, just working on the brakes. The only issue I've had, uh, kind of waited too long to get my repairman certificate, uh, thinking, yeah, I've, I was having so much fun flying, just kept putting it off. And got all took, you know, trying to get a hold of the FAA. It took him a month to call me back. Finally got a hold of the guy. He's like, oh, well, we're not taking any face-to-face meetings due to the coronavirus. So I'm kind of stuck here. Um, so I have a buddy that has the light sport repairman. Um, 
he took the two week course, I believe it is, where you can do the light sport inspection. So he's gonna he's been working with me. He's gonna sign it off for me for this this first one. But looking forward to getting up there and getting the repairman certificate on it. Yeah. Now, just for maybe clarity's sake, when you said you waited too long to get your repairman certificate, uh, you're not meaning that you're now ineligible to get a repairman certificate. You meant you waited too long to have it in hand to sign off your annual when your annuals do. Yeah, and I would have. I know it wouldn't have been an issue if the coronavirus wouldn't have hit and kind of locked everything up. Uh, it sounded like the FAA could get me in there pretty quick to do it. Um, but I ended up doing my annual about a month early, um, just because I wasn't able to do much flying. My check ride for my commercial got canceled. Um, so it was either that or do it in May when the FAA potentially reopens and I could get my um, repairment certificate, but then I'm putting off my commercial check ride potentially further. Um, so we just opted to do it early and then uh, just work with this other guy to sign it off. Yeah. And, you know, worst case scenario, you go back to your chapter members and you beg for an AMP to come help you out and, and just throw a signature on there. Yeah. Yeah. So it really hasn't been a big deal. And, and it's kind of nice actually having somebody that's kind of done it before for your first annual uh, anyways, helping you do those compression checks and adjusting valves and, and things like that. Just having somebody to watch over you um, when you really don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, you said adjusting valves. Um, so you have a, an early hydro, early early solid lifter, Jabru? Yeah. Yep. Okay. And you said you're happy with the way it's working? Yeah. Yeah. We really haven't, other than that oil tea, um, it's been running great. Uh, we've purchased, we actually purchased another Sonex uh, that had been flipped over. Uh, he ran it out of fuel and flipped it over. So we purchased the, the Sonex mainly for the uh, engine. And then we gave the uh, airframe to another guy who kind of had parts of Sonex and he was going to rebuild it. So that's kind of how we got the engine. And yeah, we've been really happy with it. It had about 25 hours on a rebuild. Yeah, well, good. I mean, uh, you know, we're all fans of Jabiru, so uh, I, I hear you. I, uh, mine's been doing great and I'm, I'm really enjoying it as well. Yeah. Knock on wood. Uh, yeah, should be, should be good. I know a lot of guys had, uh, issues with kind of early top end overhauls. Um, so we'll see the engine has like 425 hours total time on it. Uh, but yeah, this, this engine, uh, it had 25 hours on it previously. It had gotten rebuilt, uh, because he, uh, flipped it over. Uh, <laughs> kind of be a common theme here. He flipped it over. He, some birds flew up, and you got scared and put it down and got on the brakes and flipped the plane. So that's what it prop striked, and that's what uh, caused the overhaul. Uh, but yeah, we've been real happy with it, and can ask for anything more other than a few couple hundred more RPM. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as, as long as your um, your oil pressure is good and your CHTs are under control, it ought to do just great for you. Yeah, CHTs have been great. The EGTs um, seem to be pretty high, and I talked to Jabru about that. And I have a earlier style exhaust, and they said kind of how it's set up. I'm not really ever going to get great EGT readings. This is not a good place to put those. Yeah. All right. So well, I just look for consistency from them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You'll learn what is normal for your engine. And so if one cylinder is lower than the others, but that's normal, well, then that's normal. You don't get too worked up around, you know, trying to make it exactly the same number as the others. Yep. 
Okay. Well, um, where do you go from here? What's next? Yeah, so we're just uh, yeah upgrading the brakes, finishing this uh, commercial rating, and hopefully making Oshkosh if it happens this year. We'll see. But, uh, yeah, keep building hours, and the goal is to get to 500 hours and then get checked out in the uh, company's Astra. Huh. Well, good. Uh, you know, so at, at Sonic's prices, uh, that, that ought to be faster than uh, than you think right there. Yeah, yeah, as long as I can get out and fly. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're all still flying kind of around here just – Every now and then, but uh, we're supposed to be home quarantining as much as possible. Well, good. Uh, I appreciate you running through all those things. Um, it's helpful to kind of hear your thought process and, you know, what's important to you and how did you tackle stuff. I really like your focus right from the start on building for maintainability. This is something that <laughs> you know, it's it's hard to know what's going to be a pain in the butt, you know, three or four years down the road especially if you haven't done it before. So anything anything you can do or anything you can foresee and incorporate early on is usually really worth it down the road. So maybe sharing some of these things will get some other people thinking about it on their own projects. Yeah, there's definitely things I wish I would have done earlier, like those uh, gear fairing mods. That'd be great uh, to do while you're still building. All right, uh, John, Gary, um, any other Questions or comments for Jake? No, I think you have done a wonderful job. Uh, lots of good modifications and experience. You can have a great time with the aircraft. I didn't know if anybody wanted to, to briefly discuss or just take bets on what's going to happen with Air Adventure or not before we close out. Yeah, I don't know. Um, here in Kansas City area, Kansas and Missouri are both you know, in lockdown until the middle of May. And, um, and even when they throw the switch and things start to go back to normal, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a ramp up as the impacts are kind of rippling through everything else. So it's going to be June before things really kind of even hope to get back to normal. And that's not very far between the beginning of June and the start of AirVenture in, in late July. So I don't know. That's a lot of planning that it's going to be planning. kind of ah. hanging. For that, I think it would be a real stretch to imagine they could pull it off that quickly. I know. If indeed, I know. Even if, indeed, yeah. if indeed the vendors want to show up, which is really the driving force, I think. Well, and look at the 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 general clientele that go to Oshkosh. It's a lot of older people that that are really this, – this is not, you know, Burning Man where you have a lot of younger people. And they've already canceled Burning Man, which, you know, is really screwing up my fall. Yeah, actually, John, that's a good point. Um, wouldn't that be a terrible place to, to have a second outbreak is to take out the uh, the United States' pilot population because of, of a, a virus on the loose <laughs> at Oshkosh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my two cents are is I think we're probably not going to have that. Yeah. Yeah, I would guess. I'm, I'm planning on it. I, I've got the vacation time now because I'm not taking any vacation right now. Um, and I'm planning on it, but if it doesn't happen, it's just I'll just bank it for the next year. Yeah, you'd be uh, in a tough spot to be uh, running a sports book on what are the odds of whether it's happening or not. I don't know. I'd, 
That's rough. So I'm hoping to go, but yeah, I'm making it's not going to happen. But hopefully, uh, we can get to some flyings this fall. If not, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess we'll see. Well, on the subject of fly-ins, I uh, just want to let everybody know that we're doing our third Sonics virtual fly-in on Zoom this Saturday. So for those of you who have not taken advantage of the previous two fly-ins, um, it's been fun. And um, everybody ought to download Zoom and dial into the meeting and, and just check it out. It's been a good way to just kind of chat and BS and connect with other builders around the U.S. when we're not really getting a whole a very big dose of aviation from any other source. So it's been fun. And, and I think uh, we'll keep doing it as long as people are enjoying it. And, um, and when things go back to normal, maybe it'll taper way off or maybe even go away. Yeah, that's been a lot of fun to do. Seeing uh, actually people all over the world. We had uh, Peter Anson from Australia and we had somebody from South America, I think last time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's been fun seeing everybody's projects, and it's a great way. Kind of stuck doing nothing anyway, so you might as well talk to some other builders. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, I think that wraps this up. Jake, uh, appreciate you coming on and uh, and sharing all those thoughts, and uh, I'll put those pictures you sent in the show notes. Hopefully, that'll help kind of fill in some of the blanks in your descriptions on these various things sure. that you did. If you have any other pictures that you think, um, you know, stuff that you didn't already send me that you think would be a, a helpful addition, just email them to me and I'll include them in the show notes as well. Gotcha. Yeah, I'll try to shoot some over uh, tonight. Okay, good deal. All right, well, for everybody else, uh, as usual, you can find the show notes for this episode at sonicsflight.com slash 72. And all the links to email and to subscribe through the various podcast apps and iTunes and Google Play and all that. You can get to that all on the on the website. And uh, hopefully, now that the spring weather is finally, you know, starting to kind of come here, hopefully, Gary, John, this will be the last time you guys have to shovel snow. So fingers crossed, maybe. Fingers and toes. And if you could keep it out of Kansas City, I would really appreciate that. That might cost you something. <laughs> it always does. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, uh, I will see you on Zoom this Saturday. And uh, if I don't see you there, uh, look forward to talking to you all again here soon. Adios, buddies. Thanks, Jeff. Good night. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Slack podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command.